Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. If you're reading from a pew Bible, it should be on page 988. 988. Let me ask you something. Have you ever read some of the outlandish statements by Paul? Okay. Paul in Romans 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings. I promise you, that verse is in no dentist office. It makes no sense. Have you ever read what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 5.16? For worldly eyes, it is... It's silly. But from heavenly eyes, it's something that's very true. So before we read this text, let me just fill you in on what happens at Thessalonica. Paul goes to Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel. They're turned from false idols to the true and living God. Paul worked with them day and night. He set an example for them. He encouraged them in the gospel. You can imagine Paul being a spiritual father with his children and how much joy was in his heart. But then suddenly, persecution comes in. Paul is whisked away and they begin to smear Paul's name, falsify his letters, and persecute his spiritual children. Can you imagine how Paul would feel? How would you feel if it was your own physical children? And yet Paul will write the words in our text this morning. And so before we read these words, let's hear our sermon in a sentence. The will of God in Christ for us is joy. It's joy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, these words drop in on our lives like rocks in a pond and ripple. And Father, I pray that you will help us chase these words through our lives, that we may apply them, know them, love them, and love the God who spoke them to us. Heavenly Father, may your spirit abide with us in this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's read our text. Starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And thus ends the reading of God's Word this morning. We have a short text today. Now, you can tell the health of a car by how it sounds. I've never, I've never owned a brand new car, and you have that feeling where everything runs perfect. I'm a used car kind of man. And what makes you nervous is when it rattles. It starts when you go down a road kind of like Bill Strong Road. And you hit a pothole or three and you begin to hear a rattle. It bothers you a little bit, but you don't think much about it. And then you're going down the interstate and it keeps on rattling. And that's when your anxiety starts to, starts to pick up a little. But then you get to a red light. And you hear this awful noise, and you cut your car off because you think, is that me or is that him? Is that him or is that me? And when you hear this awful noise, you realize there's a problem. In the same way, our hearts have parts that rattle. We see it when we hit rough spots in life. 
unexpected tragedy, problems, hiccups. How do we respond? We, see, we hear it when we're in our carport and our car's idling. Everything seems fine, but we hear this just incessant rattling going on in our life. And then we find ourselves parked next to a well-old machine, a Christian who's walked with the Lord for many years, and we hear what they say, and we hear what we say, and we realize suddenly there's a problem. And of all the parts in our hearts that we could cover today, we're going to cover one, one that is most important. Joy. Joy. Joy isn't optional. Joy isn't what top-of-the-line Christians have and the rest of us just get by. Joy is the very engine of our life. It runs miles upon miles upon miles until suddenly we begin to hear a rattle. So I ask us, what sound is our heart making this morning? The will of God in Christ for us is joy. And we're going to look at three parts of joy. A heart that rejoices, a heart that prays, and a heart that gives thanks. We could call these our diagnostics. The first one I want us to look at is joy. Paul says rejoice always, for God is always working. You know, joy has an object. People never slap their knees and jump for joy for no reason. It's usually because a child's born, a birthday, a graduation, something. Joy has an object. God provides joy because he first provides deliverance. We see this in Thessalonica. They worship false idols and turn to the true and living God. They were bound captive to this world. They had the wrong object of joy. Wrath hung over their heads. Destruction loomed in their future. Sounds a lot like the book of Exodus. When you look at Exodus, we see that bondage dominated all of their life. When Moses goes back to Egypt, he doesn't find the, Egypt, the Israelites celebrating their 430th year of captivity. There were no balloons, no streamers. There were tears. There was crying. But as God provides deliverance, God's deliverance provides joy. When we look at the book of Exodus, he worked many miracles. We call them plagues. And these caused untold destruction, including the death of every firstborn son of Egypt. It was an absolute violent death that led to deliverance. And yet this affliction is not the defining aspect of Exodus. It is the freedom to rejoice. They sang when they were brought up from the land of Egypt. They sang when they saw Pharaoh and his army washed away by the Red Sea. They sang when they come up and were free. The men danced. The women played tambourines. Don't get any ideas this morning. But when you have death, bondage, slavery all behind you, you are free to rejoice. Worldly pleasures, sin, bring slavery and sorrow. But God delivers us from these things. He delivers us to joy. He delivers us to himself. Jesus came and worked miracles. 
But they all provided life. And instead of sacrificing our firstborn son, God sacrificed his. And by Jesus' absolute violent death, it led to our rejoicing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but he is to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died that we may live. All of our captors were drowned in a red sea of his blood, and we have only one response today, and that is to rejoice. I want you to think about flowers. We had these beautiful sunflowers in the front porch. And it seemed like they would follow the sun and their faces would suck in the light. But at night, they kind of, they wouldn't do that anymore. There was no sun to follow. In the same way, when there's no sun in our lives, we just kind of get by. Our petals are closed up. We lack the joy and the vibrance. But when the sun rises, we yearn to soak in its life-giving rays. And as the sun has risen in our hearts, we should not have our faces bowed down to the pleasures of this world, but our faces lifted to rejoice in heaven. So I ask us, which way are we turned this morning? Do we find rejoicing always to be a challenge? It's not because there's no reason to rejoice. It's because we are looking for the wrong things. God gives us earthly things to point us to heaven. These are signs. And think about it. Imagine if someone wanted to visit our church this morning. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? And instead of pulling in, they got to the sign, and they just sat in front of the sign and stared for an hour. We would think they had lost their minds. But in the same way, we do this all the time. God gives us our children. To point us to Him. God gives us our spouses to point us to Him. God gives us our guns, the deer we killed this weekend, our vacations, our families. He gives us all these worldly pleasures so that we'll look to the one who gave it to us. But instead what happens is we stop at the earthly. We trade our boredom for distractions. We trade our hurts for our hang-ups. We trade, but we do not trade them for joy. It's not that our joy on earth is too big. It's that our joy on earth is too small. These things don't make our joy full. They make us feel empty. But God has given us freedom from death and freedom to life. Freedom from slavery and freedom to liberty. Freedom from idols and freedom to God. Freedom from sorrow and freedom to join. Paul says that he died that we may live with him. All that is his is ours. We've all been married. You know what happens? When I got married, everything that was mine was Jessica's. And everything that was Jessica's was Jessica's. That's how it works. But with Jesus Christ, all that is his is ours. And even more than that, He is ours. Samuel Rutherford sings, and the sands of time are sinking, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He brings a vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merits, 
I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. We have the love of the Father, the promise of the Spirit, and heavenly joy. No one can rejoice on earth below until we have first captured that joy in heaven. So where is our joy this morning? What are we thinking about when we think about Christ? Are we hung up on the haves and have-nots of this world, or do we find our joy in heaven? If not, there may be a rattle in our hearts. The will of God in Christ for us is our joy, and we see it in a heart that rejoices. But we also see it in a heart that prays. Paul says, pray without ceasing, for God never ceases. You know, Paul says down in 523 that God will sanctify us completely. Have you ever thought about that word completely? That's a big word. I have a lot of sympathy in my heart for caregivers. Caregivers often bear a greater burden than the one being cared for. But a caregiver does not care completely. And you know how I know? At some point, they've got to go to sleep. At some point, it's on autopilot. But God never sleeps, nor he slumbers. He never ceases in his care for us. If it were not for God, if it were not for his ceaseless care, none of us here would believe in the gospel. Paul says in 2.13, actually in chapter 1, verse 5, that the word of God came to us in spirit and in power. We have a problem as Americans. We think that knowledge is power. We think we can learn our way to heaven. But that's not the case. I know plenty of people in academia who know all about the Bible, but they do not know the power of God unto salvation. If it's not for God's care for us, we would not believe in the gospel. If it were not for his ceaseless care, we would not continue in the gospel. Paul says we were sanctified by the Spirit. It's not that God gets us started and then he says, all right, you're on your own. No. It's like when I learned to ride a bike. I lived out in the country like this. We didn't have a paved driveway. We had to learn how to ride the bike on the grass, which is twice as hard. My dad takes off the training wheels. You get on the bike and you pedal and you pedal and you pedal. Especially with the hay and grass, you put an extra pedal in. I was working. I was sweating. But I wasn't the only one working. My dad was following beside me. When I would turn the steering wheel too hard, he'd nudge it back. When I began to fall over, he'd nudge it back. When I did fall over, he would catch me. I was working pretty hard. But so was he. It sounds like what Paul says in Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. If God ceased for one moment, we would cease. Now what does this have to do with prayer? I can remember teaching a Wednesday night class years ago in Laurel. And this older gentleman, he stood up and he said, Zach, do I really have to ask God's help for everything? I can do most things just fine on my own. 
Do you see the problem with that statement? Now, Paul isn't saying that every time you change a light bulb that you need to say, Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray I turn this in the right direction. Some of us might need to pray that. But what Paul is, but do you see the problem? It's not what the words the man said, it's the Spirit. I can do most things just fine on my own. It's a dangerous statement. Most of us treat prayer like a spare tire. We just keep it in the trunk until we need it, and then we just get it out when we're not just fine on our own. It's a dangerous place to be. We overestimate just how strong we are and just how little we need God. We minimize God's power with that attitude. If we wrote down our prayers, what areas of life do we seem to do just fine on our own? How often do our marriages come up in prayer? Our parenting, the pandemic, our schoolwork, our growth in Christ, our defense against spiritual attack. How much do we do just fine on our own? Praying without ceasing reveals a heart dependent upon God to provide us with joy. It is God who saves us, who is saving us, and who will save us. And there's not one moment in our life that we can attribute to ourselves. Leon Morris says that man is made to feel his own insufficiency. But at the same time, he feels the love and power of an almighty God. God will not leave man, but he provides for man's deepest needs. He provides for our joy. The will of God in Christ is our joy, and prayer is the vehicle we obtain it. The Christian ethic says its way up is down. We don't get joy by building ourselves up. We get joy by humbling ourselves in prayer. So I ask you today, don't let these things just ride. Bracket times in our life to pray. If we don't put a set time, I can tell you what's going to happen. We're not going to pray. You can find 800 better things to do than pray. But if we would add just five minutes a day in our life for prayer, our joy would be that much more complete. The will of God in Christ is for our joy, and it's tied to our prayers. Lastly, if the will of God is for our joy, we see it in a heart that rejoices, a heart that prays, and a heart that gives thanks. We give thanks in all circumstances, for God is involved in all circumstances. I'm about to say something very controversial. I don't like Christian decor. Don't throw eggs at me. Here's the reason why. We have coffee cups, and they say, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, we've read what happened at Thessalonica. Do you think it was easy for Paul to write those words? We have pictures in our house that say, rejoice always. And what happens is we make these things very trite. No one has a bread bowl that says, the Lord breaks the teeth of the wicked. Okay? Why? Because we realize that, that scripture is weighty. But it's no less weighty than rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
Paul writes this to a church who experienced profound persecution from their very own neighbors. The word of God came to them in much suffering and affliction. And Paul looks at them and he says, I am commanding you to rejoice always. Really, Paul? I'm commanding you to give thanks in all circumstances. Paul, were you there when my husband died unexpectedly? Paul, were you there when all this trial and tribulation happened with my children, with my own flesh and blood? Were you there when I lost my job? Were you there when my 401k crashed? Are you telling me to be thankful? You know, when Israel crossed the Red Sea, they were free. But they were not in rest. Between the Red Sea and the Promised Land was a wilderness. Temptation, loss, suffering. When they sinned, God did not forsake them. And at the end of the journey, God would, Moses would describe God like an eagle. Like an eagle, it kicks its young out of the nest. But then it swoops down and it picks them up in its pinions and it guides them. So the Lord guided Israel. Everything that earth denied, heaven provided. Water, food, shelter from the sun. Their shoes lasted 40 years. It's incredible. Everything God provided for them because he was with them. And when Jesus walked this earth, the fullness of the Spirit dwelt with him. He was keenly aware of his Father's presence. You know, it amazes me that when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. But what's most amazing is that when Jesus went to the Lord in prayer, you notice Jesus didn't beg and plead. Jesus said, Father, I know you hear me. I'm only praying so they both know you hear me. He was assured of his Father's presence. And yet Jesus goes to the cross, and in a moment that will absolutely shock the mind, He experienced something Israel never experienced in the wilderness. He was forsaken by the Father. And he endured a forsaking that none of us can comprehend so that we would never be forsaken. So that in all circumstances, we would be able to give thanks. There's a quote by B.B. Warfield that I read two years ago that's had a profound shaping effect on my life, especially when we think of giving thanks in even the bad circumstances. Someone wrote B.B. Warfield a letter and they said, does God cause suffering? How would you respond to that question? B.B. Warfield said, yes, and God only. For the sinner, it's punishment. For the child, it's chastisement. To put it any other way robs us of our comfort. It robs us of our comfort. I can tell you, an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness because they failed to give thanks to God in all circumstances. And the punishment they endured was just a foreshadowing of an eternal punishment. But in the same way, the next generation entered the promised land and the joy they entered into is just a a drop of the joy we enter into in heaven. 
In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis puts it together like this, to which I'm going to paraphrase. He says that when we are forgiven, when we are saved, we look back at our past sins and our remembered sorrows, and they take on the form and quality of heaven. But to the lost, his past takes on the quality of his badness and his sin. So that when we're in heaven and all the, everything has been played out, in heaven we will look back and we will say, I have never known anything but heaven. And the lost will look back and say, I have known nothing but hell. And both will speak truly. We cannot turn our unthankfulness into thankfulness this morning unless we go back to the source. So I encourage you to sit with me and think of the trying circumstances in your life. What do you think about God in these circumstances? Can you kiss the rod that struck you? Or do you resent God? All of us in life go through a fire. It's either the fire of judgment or the refiner's fire, but everyone goes through a fire. But it's only through going through the fire that God sets us apart for joy, that God sets us apart for himself. How do we feel about God this morning? Is he a cosmic bully or is he one we can do without? Or do we see God as powerful, wise, and good? Do we know him as our loving Heavenly Father? Joy will not come by having the dream job, the dream family, or the dream home. It will only come through the reality of Jesus Christ, by trusting and thanking Him. We can rest assured, God never treats us worse than we deserve. God often treats us better, but He never treats us worse. And God gives us many things in life to prepare us for a heavenly joy. Let me close, and let me just ask, have we taken the time, life is very busy, but have we sat down and actually listened to our hearts? Some of us, our life is great. We're on a, a gravy train with biscuit wheels, and yet deep in our hearts, we hear something rattling, don't we? We hear a rattle. There's no joy, there's no thankfulness, there's no dependence upon God. Temporary measures won't fix it. Worldly things won't provide heavenly joys. I encourage you to stop today. Look into the eyes of Jesus Christ, His beauty, His love, and His compassion that He extends to sinners. Turn to Him that you may find joy. Christ may lead you through a wilderness but Christ will nourish our hearts with joy. The rest of us find ourselves off the beaten path, driving through the valley of the shadow of death, and we're worried that our old beat-up pinto is going to break down any minute. But as Thomas Boston says in The Crook and the Lot, God often extends His hand and takes a, heaven, a earthly thing from us. And God expects us to extend our hand and to take a heavenly thing from Him, to take Christ from Him. He extends to us heavenly joy to weak and weary souls who apply to Him for rest. Much like the hymn that I probably should have closed today with says, Be still, my soul, 
your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all that he takes away. This is joy, tender, heavenly joy. This is the will of God and Christ for you and for me. Will we take hold of it? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the words I read last week. When life stinks, perspective shrinks. Heavenly Father, would you give us a heavenly perspective? Would you allow us to look upon Christ and the beauty in his face that we may find joy and that our joy may be complete? Father, I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a different hymn. Actually, no, let's sing Be Still My Soul. I think it's 869.